Mindfulness Mode 130. For me, anger was like a mosquito bite. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness on Mindfulness Mode with me, your host, Bruce Langford. On Mindfulness Mode, we talk about how people from all walks of life have discovered mindfulness and how it's impacted their lives to help them become more calm, focused, and happy. Okay, Mindful Tribe, let's get started. I'm totally thrilled to have Laura Coe on the line today. Hey, Laura, are you in mindfulness mode? I am. I try to stay in mindfulness mode as often as I can each day. Laura Coe is an entrepreneur, author, and certified life coach working to help you find fulfillment one day at a time through daily emotional workout routines, emotional nutrition, and other tools and insights. She co-founded LithoLink Corporation, a healthcare company serving over 350,000 patients per month nationally. When it sold to a Fortune 500 company, she left corporate America to pursue lifelong passions. Now she helps break down monumental, life-changing philosophy and ancient wisdom in a way that everyone can apply to their own lives. So Laura, what does mindfulness mean to you? Yeah, so mindfulness to me is such a great question. Um, It's almost something you take for granted as um, an answer that you should be aware of and know the answer to. So I'm so glad you asked that because I think it's really complicated. Mindfulness to me really suggests this idea that you've um, taken the time every day to explore what's going on in your mind and you have an awareness that the thoughts, the things you think about all day long aren't necessarily true and that you don't have to follow those thoughts and take action from them, that perhaps they're just uh, warning signals that something else is going on in your life or, uh, messages that you picked up from somebody else. Um, so mindfulness to me is just really understanding that the things we think about, uh, what, what goes on in our mind, you know, um, can be taken with a grain of salt and that your actual true self, um, is, is mixed up in there. So figuring out, uh, which voice to listen to and, um, which ones to take action to design a life is really how I think about mindfulness. Right. We definitely don't have to listen to all those voices all the time. That's for sure. No, most of them are pretty misleading and don't get us the outcomes we want. Right. Well, you know, I'm sure you help your clients a lot with mindfulness. Do you sometimes get a client and you feel to your, you feel, man, the first thing I need to do is help this person become more mindful and start living in the present a little more? A hundred percent. It's something that I feel is the very first step in the process. Um, And I try a lot of different techniques to get people there because I don't think meditation is for everybody. And I certainly don't think three hours of meditation is practical for most people. So um, I, I really do think of it as a first step. And to me, it's again, just noticing that these thoughts, the things you're thinking all day long, they're not necessarily always truthful. Right, that's for sure. And sometimes they trick us, don't they? How do you decipher between the thoughts that are really healthy and the ones that are actually not a good thing to listen to? It's like the million dollar question, right? (laughs) Um, You know, I got myself to a place in my life where the thoughts in my head were all mushed together that I couldn't tell the difference between the ones, the imposter thoughts, the ones that were really unhealthy, that my mind was just scattered and frayed and, and that deeper, authentic, meaningful, true voice, the one that, that was my inner wisdom. And 
So it was a real big process for me to, to, to separate them out. But what I think is the simplest way to think about it is what are the emotions that are coming with the thoughts in your head and what can that help you with in your life? So say the thoughts in your head are going crazy and you have a ton of fear and you have, um, a, a lot of sense of rejection or worry, all sorts of, you know, negative thoughts are just piling up. Um, I, if, if it's something that I'm doing that's meaningful to me and I'm having some fear, but I feel excited and uplifted, I try to, um, think of it as like a, uh, an annoying friend that, that I just have to ignore <laughs> for a little while. <laughs> but if it's not that situation, I think it's my life telling me that there's something that has gone awry and I, I've got to um, figure out what's happening. So it's a really good moment to get curious about yourself. Um, and, you know, like I said, maybe you need more sleep. Maybe uh, your job is getting you down. Maybe your relationships are problematic. And, and what do I want to do with that information? So, Laura, I want to go back to your childhood. Were there any signs when you're a child that you would identify with mindfulness when you were older? Mm, absolutely. Um, I think kids are the best teachers of mindfulness <laughs> because I, I actually think we're created in a way that's very mindful. Um, in fact, I did my yoga teacher training program. Uh, and at the same time, I had a three, four-year-old. And, um, it became very aware to me as I was diving, you know, really deep into my yoga practice and we were doing really long meditations that I'd come home at the end of the day and I would ask my son, what did you do today? And I was asking him to think about the past. And then I'd say, yes. what do you want to do later? And all of these questions just would go right past him. He just wanted to be in the moment with whatever he was doing and have me share in that moment. And as an adult, I'm always you know, thinking about what happened and what, what's going to happen. And some of that's helpful, but kids are the greatest teachers, um, in terms of, you know, just being present and for myself, absolutely. I mean, it just is one big, long, happy, mindful moment in the present. When I think of my childhood playing sports and just being on the front lawn and being with your friends and, and, and not worrying about what's to come or where you were. Oh, that's great. That sounds like a great childhood, Laura. So let's skip to your time in corporate. What was that like? Did you need to use your mindfulness muscle a lot then? Yeah. So, you know, I had, I created this, um, this business with my family and I enjoyed right. entrepreneurship and, and we sold it. And, um, I was part of this fortune 500 and, I mean, if there's one place on the planet that is not for me, it's corporate America. I was just like the classic entrepreneur that's yeah. wondering, how did I get here? Um, I just couldn't take it. And, you know, I was doing a lot of the things that I now help my clients with. I was thinking about all the rationalizations or justifications for why I should stay. You know, I was making a, a really great living. <laughs> I had flexibility mm -hmm. at that point in my job. Um, I was doing things that were meaningful and helping a lot of people. And so there was all these things I was saying to myself that were logical, but mm -hmm. it wasn't meaningful to me. And deep within me, I started having this stirring sensation that things were off until it became a louder <laughs> sensation. And then over time it became actual panic and I was, you know, not sleeping at night. 
And so my lack of mindfulness at that point was really causing a lot of distress. And that's when I got really serious about listening to these messages and this, this, um, deeper wisdom within you to, you know, be your guiding principles in life, even if the logic (laughs) isn't quite there. So as a coach, I'm sure you work in limiting beliefs. Did you have some limiting beliefs that kind of held you back? I mean, I was like one walking limiting belief at that point. (laughs) I was just like, I, you know, that's where I came up with this idea of like junk food thoughts and wrote the book about all this stuff because that was me. I was the book. I was just like, the book is emotional obesity and I was carrying all this emotional weight and I was so layered up with limiting ideas of what my life could be like. Um, I decided I was an entrepreneur and I was in business, so I had to leverage those skill sets because why would you do something different? And when I finally got past you know, those kind of limiting beliefs, I sat down to write my book and I was like, I don't have a PhD. I can't write a book. You know, <laughs> just mm-hmm. It was one after the next after the next until I really learned that although I had these limiting beliefs, I didn't need to listen to them and they didn't need to be true that I could write a new narrative, one that was supportive and empowering for my life. So you sat down to write that book and you finally got to the point where you could get into it and produce something you are proud of. And did that take then a certain form of mindfulness? Because you're you're really alluding that it did, but I just want to dig in a little more here. Yeah. Well, you know, the beginning of the process was really difficult as I was combating all of these voices that were telling me I wasn't good enough and I shouldn't be writing and who am I to write. And Mm -hmm. as I started to embrace the idea of mindfulness, not just as, you know, I meditated, I did yoga, but then I'd kind of be done and, and, and go right back into the craziness of my head. Um, so I learned over time that, you know, this isn't just something to do as a side project. It was a way of living my life, that these these messages, the things going on in my mind, I needed to be aware of them all the time and their destructive effects. And so as I got more and more, I call them emotional workouts, as I really worked that muscle, I was able to, um, you know, really free myself of this. It, it, it It's not something that Um, goes away, but it got easier and easier and easier until I found this real sense of ease in my life. Um, So the back half of the book, you know, I think I wrote like 10,000 words in a year and then I wrote Mm -hmm. 60,000 the next year. (laughs) So it just like started to just come together. Wow, it really did. Well, uh, some people say that they have those emotional workouts just as a result of journaling you were writing your book but did that help you through writing itself just as journaling does did that help you work through these yeah absolutely it was this really great journey for me to you know read amazing work that i was inspired by from Pema to Eckhart Tolle or whatever. I was a philosophy undergrad and graduate student and I dove back into, you know, all these great works that, you know, people have been talking about this forever in every culture. And mm-hmm. and then think about how to apply it in modern day life. Um, I'm a mom. I'm, I live in a city. How do I take these ideas and, and make them applicable? And so writing was a really great way for me to um, connect to the ideas on a deeper level and apply them to my life and think about, you know, their, their meaning. Right. You talked a bit about how children influence you with your own child. I don't know if you have just the one, but as a mom, tell us about your day-to-day life and how mindfulness plays a part. Well, you know, I 
I find being a parent, if you're willing, you know, Dr. Shafali, I don't know if you've checked her out, but conscious parenting, right, I'm just, yeah, I'm such a big fan of this whole idea. And it's just, for me as a mom, he's the one that's spiritually put together. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and so he's my reminder on a regular basis to come back to the present. Um, and when we sit down and we play and we do things together, you know, my mind is drifting to what I should be doing or the emails I'm not getting back to, but he's not having that. And so I use him as a guiding principle of, you know, what we were naturally designed to do. Um, and sometimes it's a fight. I've got to like keep myself present. It's not, you know, easy as an adult, but he's a, he's an incredible, um, role model for me. So I I think a lot of parents kind of think of their themselves as the role model for their children. And that's true in the practical sense. I have more life experience, but you know, he's, uh, still clean of all the stuff that we do to ourselves as adults. And so on a spiritual level, I really think of him as like my mentor. Right. I want to go back to your coaching and I'm wondering if you can talk about some specific examples of where mindfulness has really helped you with a client. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Um, I I think um, mindfulness plays heavily when you're coaching um, in a, in a couple ways, uh, one, I feel that each one of my clients are going through, um, their journey and that my ability to stay present in the moment with them and connect with compassion to what they're going through, um, makes the coaching process a much more meaningful experience, I think for myself and, and, and hopefully for them as well. Um, so I think in that way, it's, it's really powerful. And I also think that, if I'm not in a good state of mind, if I'm not focused and present and I'm not controlling the thoughts in my head, um, then I have an ability to project my own ideas onto them. And one of the things I take very seriously about coaching is being able to show up clean of an agenda. Um, I can't project my own, say, say I'm dealing with a client who's got an anger issue (laughs) and, you know, they're really struggling with that. Well, my ideas of whether that's right or wrong or placing judgment or any of that can't show up in the coaching session. Um, so mindfulness really for me is about checking all that stuff at the door and being present and compassionate with, uh, with my clients as they're going through their journey. So Laura, how do you deal with anger, whether it's coming from somebody you're coaching or someone else in a real life situation? What do you do? Yeah. Anger was a big one for me. Um, I grew up with a pretty temperamental father and Mm -hmm. anger was a big, uh, coping skill in our home. Mm -hmm. And for me, anger was like a mosquito bite. Um, I sort of kicked the habit like cigarettes or or scratching a mosquito bite. It's just like, you want to itch it so badly in a moment, but it just, you know, bleeds and becomes a mess if you really scratch that, that mosquito bite. So, um, in my own life, I've, I just really committed to the idea that there's no valuable outcome from anger. And so I refrain at all costs to get into, you know, an angry space. That said, it's not something to judge either. It's an indication that something's happening. So why am I getting angry? Is this person triggering something within me? So I use it as an opportunity to learn about myself instead of engaging in what is, you know, basically this useful exercise of, you know, two people going at it. Um, and when my client therefore is 
feeling angry. I mean, it doesn't typically happen on a call with me, but um, mm-hmm. they're expressing a situation where they've been really temperamental. It, it turns into an exploration of what's happening with that person. And typically underneath the anger is a lot of, you know, uh, a, a big emotional experience and journey. And so um, I would really recommend to anybody who struggles with anger to think of it as like this barrier between you and your truth. If you can step through the anger to what's really happening on the other side, you know, you can learn a lot about yourself. Yeah, you really can. Mindful Tribe, I just want to say this. Laura is giving us such great info today. And as appreciation for listening today, I want to give you something as well. An infographic called Calm Your Busy Mind. This download focuses on breathing, exercise, and mantras. You can get your copy at mindfulnessmode.com forward slash calm, C-A-L-M. Hey, Laura, I just want to talk to you about grief. Can you just chat for a few minutes about how mindfulness can help with dealing with grief? Yeah, grief is a funny one. Um, because, you know, it in, in unlike a lot of the other emotional states, you know, this one is really aligned with the external world. Some, you know, somebody we love or care for, is no longer with us. And there, there is a natural process to that. Um, and I think that, uh, allowing yourself the opportunity to experience that emotion is really important, but to not be monsooned at the same time, right. And finding Mm -hmm. that line between, uh, being honest and truthful about where you are emotionally, but then not getting swallowed up is I think the big struggle. And sometimes if you can just kind of allow life to just happen without trying to force yourself to be a certain way or to react a certain way. How do you help people allow things to happen? And at the same time, they want to move forward in their life or in their business. What's the fine line there, Laura? Uh, You know, this is one of my absolute favorite subjects. Um, Allowing imperfection right? Allowing pain moments. I mean, we're so designed around pleasure and pain. We want to avoid pain at all costs and we Mm -hmm. want to have pleasure at every turn. Um, Mm -hmm. and life isn't just a ice cream cone feeling, right? Like we can't maintain a sense of happiness at, in, in that way. And I think this, that this is the real struggle for people is confusing the idea of pleasure, like an ice cream cone with, a long lasting, deep sense of joy and purpose. Um, and if you can look at your life in terms of pain, pleasure being one thing, right? I stub my toe. That's painful. I <laughs> ate an ice cream cone. That's pleasurable. Both are going to be over They're fleeting emotional states. Right. And the thing that I'm looking for in my life is long lasting joy, a sense of fulfillment. And so for me, it's, um, when I talk to my clients about difficulties and they want to, uh, avoid those things at all costs. I just really encourage them to allow the imperfections of a day to be okay. It doesn't have to be a problem that life is imperfect and you're having a bad day. Some days are just like that. And on the other side, you know, you can't hold on to pleasure points. They also have to come and go. And once you kind of let that be a natural flow of life, 
uh, a lot more does happen. So to your question about, I, I want to get things done. When you let go of that expectation, that need for things to always be pleasurable and happy, um, you can actually get a lot more productivity in your life. Yes, you really can. And sometimes those things that are kind of painful really do make us feel good, like working out, being healthy through activity, you know? Yeah. I mean, doing the emotional work of mindfulness is not right. comfortable, but no. the outcome is great. So again, right, this this confusion of pleasure um, always leading to the outcome we want is, is not, um, it's just not how it really works. And again, all the the, the ancient texts and philosophy would, would, you know, agree with that. Yeah, this is right on Mindful Tribe. I hope you're taking notes here, at least mental notes anyway, because <laughs> Laura is right on with her thoughts about pleasure and pain. I think this is really, really valuable. Well, Laura, you may know that I worked in the field of bullying prevention for some time. And I found that mindfulness can really help in that area, whether it's bullying involving children or adults. Do you have a story where mindfulness may have helped in a bullying situation? Yeah, you know, I, um, I have a lot of stories because I have a 10-year-old son and he's in uh, school and, um, you know, he relays children who are not treated as well and what happened in school. And mm -hmm. a recent story was, you know, they're out on the playground, which is where a lot of this stuff happens. Sure. And um, th there's one child that continually has difficulty regulating his emotions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the other kids really give him a hard time and shut him down until he cries. And then their sense is, well, you know, why is he crying? And that shouldn't be happening. And he's just complaining to the teacher. And, you know, the mindfulness part for me is that this is a real opportunity to have my son show up to the realities of how complex life is and all the nuances that, mm -hmm. you know, this child is actually having a deeper experience and he's not reading the uh, social cues as well as some of the other kids might be. And what could you do to be more compassionate and help him? Or that just because you're getting help from an adult doesn't mean that this child is tattling, right? Which is one of the things that drives me crazy. Yes. What are you supposed to do when you're a young right. child? Yeah. And it's this strange idea that we shouldn't get adult uh, engagement. We should figure it out, you know? Well, mm -hmm. I mean, they can't even figure out what to eat for dinner and they're supposed to manage yeah. these complex emotional situations. Um, and so, you know, taking that time with my son to have a, a real exchange and, and help create empathy and compassion within him um, so that hopefully he can be a leader and stand up in these moments and, and you know, act out of a deeper principle um, is, is what I really think about um, a lot and, and as a parent. Right. Laura, my next questions are part of the multi-mode round. Just short 30-second answers are perfect. Here's the first one. Who is one person who has influenced your mindfulness practice? Uh, I mean, Pema Chodron is, to me, <laughs> my hero. Mm. Uh, if you haven't checked her out, start where you are. Um, don't take the hook. But she's a Buddhist um, monk, and she's just outstanding. How has mindfulness affected your emotions? It's been the most important piece because it allows me to have the awareness and then to recognize that to be human is to have emotions and to not judge those emotions, to allow them to have a life force of their own. And, um, and I think the mindfulness practices 
uh, you know, the ancient ideas that have been around for thousands of years, I mean, they, they really had figured this out. So tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness practice. Oh my God. I mean, I teach pranayama to my coaching clients sometimes. <laughs> you know, we breathe at the very, very, very tippity top of our chest. And <laughs> it's like, yeah. you know, when I learned from my yoga teacher that our lungs are actually around our whole rib cage in your back, like, you know, the yeah. belly breathing, um, breathing is arguably to me one of the most incredible experiences uh, to take a deep breath all the way from, you know, the base of your belly all the way through your chest into your back. I mean, it, it, um, it can get rid of so much emotional stress. It's amazing. I know you have a wonderful book called Emotional Obesity. What other books would you recommend on this topic of mindfulness? Well, like I said, Pema is um, a top one for me right? in terms of mindfulness. Um, she really sure. is my my sort of go-to on compassion, on, you know, she teaches actual practices for meditation, for breathing. I, you know, I just really can't think of anybody who tops that. Sure. Can you share an app which helps you to be more mindful? So I haven't had too much of a desire to get into apps because I was a, trained as a yoga teacher and all that, but my clients really sure. loved Headspace. So I checked it out and I have to say it was really great and I really enjoy it. If you're starting off in meditation, um, they've got these great 10 minute um, weekly series. But if you're somebody like myself who's meditated for a long time and thinks mindfulness is um, already part of your life, I really think you can get a lot of benefit from it as well. It's, it's really well done. Great. Thanks for that. What advice would you give a person who's new to the idea of mindfulness and they'd like to start using it in their life? The most important thing I can say is let go of these ideas on the internet that you have to go to India on a mountaintop or like check yourself into some kind of, you know, month long program. Just start with anything. There's new um, app out there, 10% happier. Yes. Um, I love that too, in large part because of the idea. Just start with something. The awareness, take three minutes to meditate and, and, you know, just closing your eyes can be enough for you. So my real advice is to just do anything because anything is better than nothing. It really is. Yes. And I was going to ask you, Laura, what does your meditation practice look like in your own life? Yeah. So I've never been somebody who, you know, I tried, uh, the 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes in the evening. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it just wasn't that practical with a young child. So for right. me, um, I really roll it into my yoga practice and try to get a longer meditation less often. So a couple days a week I'll do mm -hmm. yoga. And then at the end, um, I'll sit for 20 to 30 minutes. And then throughout the day, I just, try to bring that awareness, gather my thoughts, come back to my breath, come back into my body. And I do that dozens of times in a day, almost instinctually now. Wow. That is, uh, that's great. And with children, yeah, we have to be willing to change our lives to accommodate what works. That's for sure. And, and sometimes that affects meditation. Definitely. Yeah. I think people are very hard on themselves. If I can't do, you know, what I read was the right way to do it and you know, do it yes. in the mornings and the evenings, then I just won't do it at all. But again, like t check out Headspace, t take 10 minutes on your living room floor. It's, it still um, makes a big difference. Wow. Well, Laura, I just want to ask you, how can Mindful Tribe learn more about what you do and possibly contact you? Yeah, I can be found at um, lauracoe.com. 
or emotionalobesity.com. Um, they both point to the same place and you can check out my work and um, I also offer coaching so you can reach out to me through that site. That's great. Well, it's really been a treat to spend this time chatting with you. Thanks so much for being on the show and have a great rest of your day. Thanks, Bruce. And thanks for doing this great work and bringing the ideas of mindfulness out to people. You're welcome. Bye now. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. Hey, Mindful Tribe, just a reminder to download your free Calm Your Busy Mind infographic. Laura has shared so much great content with us today, and you'll be reminded of some of these thoughts and ideas on the infographic, which helps you with breathing, mantras, exercise. Get your copy at mindfulnessmode.com forward slash calm, C-A-L-M. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.